Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. So this past summer, I directed an opera for West Edge Opera at the Cal Shakes Theater in Orinda in the Berkeley Hills. And after the opera, I got a really nice note uh, from a couple that had been there saying that they had enjoyed it and also that, like me, they have a background in science. So what does one do? Well, of course, I Googled them. And I discovered John and Lois Crow, who worked as a research team for many years at UC Davis and helped UC Davis become one of the top-rated biological science programs in the nation. And then I learned more about what they did. It turns out that the two of them are best known for their pioneering work towards understanding how some organisms survive extreme drying or extreme dehydration. And specifically, how a simple sugar called triolose works to preserve uh, an animal or an organism such that when it does have access to water, it can essentially revive itself. So this is the stuff of science fiction. Uh, Particularly, you might have heard about this process in the cute little animals called tardigrades. And so This brought up so many questions in my head about what it means to be alive, um, whether a dried out tardigrade is alive, if uh, it doesn't actually have any kind of metabolism or activity. And yet, if you rehydrate it, uh, it seems to be just fine. So I was really excited to bring John and Lois Crow onto Inquiring Minds to talk about their seminal work on tree hellos and dehydration. John and Lois Crow, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I want to start from the beginning. And I'm sure that, you know, you're, you're probably sick of talking about tardigrades. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we had Andy Weir, who's a science fiction writer. He wrote The Martian on the show um, a couple months back, talking about his latest book of science fiction called Project Hail Mary. And I won't tell you all the details of the book, but one of the sort of central claims of the book is that any life, including any potential alien life, would have to have water. (laughs) And it seems like your work calls that into question. So I really, you know, I I really want to hear more about it. But I first want to start with, you know, John, in your graduate work with Dr. Higgins, how did you come across this tiny organism? 
Well, uh, first off, uh, about Andy, uh, he's a local boy from Woodland, very close to where we live. Uh-huh. Uh, he and I were on Science Friday together several years ago and had a good discussion of some of these things. So it's, in, it's fun to hear his name again. This actually got started when I was a, a teenager in high school. Just after Sputnik, the National Science Foundation was authorized to go out and gather up uh, promising young kids who were interested in science and uh, send us to boot camp. And I was one of those. I read about uh, these microorganisms, tardigrades, among other things, that can survive complete dehydration when I was 15 years old. And went out and found some of them in uh, my summer boot camp in, uh, for NSF. And sure enough, you can dry them out, I found. that I found that fascinating. and. Uh, continued with it for, uh, well, up to the day. <laughs> yeah. So it's been uh, uh, 60 years and more. Okay, so you dry them out. What, do you put them in a bag of rice the way you do with a phone? Like, <laughs> how do you dry them out? Well, you have to dry them out slowly. And uh, back in those early days, I didn't know quite a, what I was doing, but uh, I found that if I put them on a piece of paper, which tends to, uh, to retain water, they would dry slowly over a couple of days. Uh, then when you get them dry, you can uh, let them sit for uh, years and years at a time. I uh, add water, and uh, within minutes, they're moving around, come back to active life. That's amazing. <laughs> that is, I mean, it's just, it just seems so counterintuitive in terms of what life is all about. So what did you make of this when you first discovered it? Well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. It's, it was a downright uh, religious experience to have it see that happen. But I decided early on that I had to find out how they did this and uh, spent some of my undergraduate years at Wake Forest, where I was an under, uh, undergraduate, uh, where Bob Higgins was, who studied tardigrades. And that's one reason I, I was there. Anyway, um, studied them uh, sort of on a superficial level in those undergraduate years, as you might imagine. And then uh, later on, I began to think I, I should understand something about their chemistry. That's probably where the, the, the secret lies. And sure enough, it turned out that they synthesize uh, large quantities of a peculiar sugar called triolose. It's a disaccharide of glucose, a very simple looking molecule, but it has some remarkable properties. By that time, when we had uh, discovered they made this molecule and worked out some of the chemistry of how they make it, I was here at Davis and met Lois, who was a graduate student in the lab next door. And uh, after she finished her PhD, we started working together and began to ask, what is, what is it about that molecule that's important? And it turns out it has a, a, a remarkable property of uh, stabilizing membranes and proteins and DNA, all the important molecules of life in the dry state. And together, over uh, some years, we worked out how it works. It turns out that it replaces the water around those molecules, uh, around membranes and proteins and DNA, et cetera by hydrogen bonding, much as water does when they're fully hydrated. And they confer on the dry molecules a physical state that makes them look like they're fully hydrated. And that's the secret. That's how it works. So they kind of trick the other molecules around into thinking that there is water here, exactly. but yet there are no chemical reactions, right? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that that's sort of, otherwise you'd have a degradation over time. Exactly. You no, know, if, it, if it, there was a chemical reaction, uh, a co- covalent bond between the triolose and the protein, for instance, the protein would be wrecked irrevocably. But triolose has the property of not undergoing such reactions, which is an important part of its chemistry. It doesn't do those, those things. Glucose does, by contrast. And glucose in the dry state will wreck a protein very quickly, whereas triolose, which is two glucoses, does not. 
So Lois, what's what's your story? How did you how did you decide to work with John? Well, I, as Joan said, I was a graduate student in the lab next door, working in a totally different area. I was doing some <clears throat> studies on the structure of muscle development of muscle, and in the course of that, I developed a number of technical skills and. Um, it turns out that those were the things that John needed. And so when I joined the lab, it, it just became a lot of fun, <laughs> the, the science, that is. And I was able to apply what I knew to, to the problem. And at the time, you know, Davis, was, I, I think, was a pretty young university. And so I, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about how, you know, it grew into this powerhouse in kind of agricultural education and understanding. And, and tell us a little bit about those early days. Well, uh, it's uh, not that young. It was founded in 1906 as an agricultural experiment station and became a general campus after World War II. So it's been around a little while. It wasn't so well known for biological sciences uh, until I would say the 60s and 70s and 80s. And then it began to mushroom. And now it's a real powerhouse, as you said. We've been here for a little over 50 years, and during that 50 years, yes, it's, it's changed dramatically. Yeah, I wonder about what is the secret to you know, UC Davis's success? Well, careful recruitment, uh, hiring good faculty and keeping them. Good faculty will, will leave if you're not careful. We had numerous offers to go and, and didn't, because Davis is a nice place to live. Uh, it, was, it was a nice place to raise our kids. and. Uh, the university was very supportive of what we were doing. So we stayed. I mean, and that, that allowed you to sort of build this just immense body of work. And, you know, there, there I want to continue talking a little bit about Trelos and, and what its implications are. One of the kind of immediate things that, that comes to mind and people that have, have written about this as well with respect to your work is its potential for use in humans, for example, to preserve organs or even perhaps even entire bodies. <laughs> So tell us about that. Well, that'll probably never happen. Whole bodies, certain, certainly not. Uh, organ, organs, maybe. A little background. Uh, w- once we found out that uh, trellis can uh, stabilize membranes and proteins, et cetera, in the dry state, uh, we didn't realize immediately that it, it did have uh, practical applications, but the industry did. In about uh, the mid-1980s, we were at a meeting in Cambridge, England, and some food scientists came up afterwards and said, do you know what you have here? This is really significant, and we didn't. We, we laughed at them. Said, what, what would you use this for? And they said, "Well, all kinds of things in their field, food science." But it turned out that it had a lot of applications in pharma- pharmaceutical sciences. Uh, for instance, uh, since trellis preserves membranes, it turned out that it can preserve liposomes for drug delivery. And what the first product that came out of that work was uh, a liposome preparation. You know what liposomes are? Mm-hmm. But maybe explain for our listeners. Well, they're artificial membranes, and you can trap things inside. They act like uh, little vesicles. You can trap drugs inside that you want to deliver to cells. And uh, the first one was uh, a drug for treatment of systemic fungal infections, which are almost always fatal if you get one. Well, the final product was uh, liposomes dried in the bottle, uh, bottom of a serum bottle. You add water. The physician adds water in this, to the serum bottle, shakes it up, and they're ready to inject. It was a very successful product. It's still on the market. And out of that came uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of products in the pharmaceutical industry, especially. 
protein-based, DNA-based, liposome-based, on and on and on. The list is enormous. Regrettably, we lost most of the rights to that because we published too fast and didn't understand that uh, what implications it would have. Hmm. Yeah, but it, it's widespread. Anytime you look anywhere for a, a dry product, they'll mention triolose. Hmm. And so, is it the same thing that um, that that is used to say create dried fruit, or you know, the kind of dehydrated kind? I'm thinking not like raisins, but like you know, when you see dehydrated bananas or you know, other kinds of dehydrated. Could be there. There was a. It's not used that way. It's too expensive. But uh, oh, I see. Yeah, but it could be. In fact, there was a whole company that started up with just that in mind, but it failed because uh, economically it just wouldn't work. Uh, A pharmaceutical product is another matter altogether. It's expensive, so they're willing to spend more money uh, for the sugar uh, rather than uh, for for food. It would just it's just too expensive. But so, what would be the benefit to the pharmaceutical company of using it? Is it is it more stable? Is it more predictable? It's more stable. Uh, the products dried with triolus are, are uh, stable for years at a time. Room temperature, no refrigeration required. So yeah, there are good reasons for using it. What's What's interesting is that when we started using triolose, we couldn't always get a really pure preparation, we found out. And then when we did find a good source, it was very expensive. But the more we published, the more companies got interested in making pure trilos, and now it's relatively cheap. Yeah, there's a Chinese company that makes it uh, for worldwide distribution. They're the world leaders now. Oh, wow. It's relatively cheap from them, but still probably too expensive for, for food. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. So in 2001, um, the two of you, along with a few others, published an introduction to, I think, a special issue of cryobiology, talking about the triolose myth (laughs) and trying to set the record straight on a number of things that people misunderstood about triolose. Some of these are probably too in in the weeds for our audience, but I wonder if you if there, it made me wonder whether there are other myths about triolose that you would like corrected. I can just relate some of the myths I heard in that uh, that paper way back then. The firm, the um, cosmetic industry had picked up on this for some reason, and they decided triolose, if it's uh, good for uh, pharmaceutical preparations, what about cosmetics? So they started tossing it into shampoo and uh, Preparations for um, face cream, um, face creams, <laughs> like because then it would sort of keep the whatever the biological ingredients were kind of somehow 
more uh, I, I don't I know what, what what do you think that was their goal or what do they think it was going to do advertising it was a fad uh, <laughs> okay, it was got just it. a fad they had they had no reason for putting it in there uh-huh. they're still doing it for no good reason it has no function in all those preparations but they they do it anyway is it is it like related to well, a tardigrade can live forever <laughs> Sure. So, well, you yeah. know, put it in your face cream. It'll make your yeah. face live forever. <laughs> it's all nonsense, but uh, they're still doing it. My favorite is they had one preparation they claimed would cure, cure baldness. Now, this is a favorite line of mine because I'm bald. Uh-huh. And <laughs> so I, I show their slide in, in seminars and say, do you think I believe this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good. So one of the other kind of uses of, of your work in Triolos is in the body's response to stressful environments. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and about how, you know, what, what we can learn about sort of extreme environments, particularly as we face climate change and potentially much more extreme heat. Um, is there anything that we can learn from your work that can help solve some of those problems? I rather doubt that there'll be much application in that direction. Uh, now, Triolos does have some interesting properties that are under exploration by uh, a wide variety of clinical science scientists, uh, and that it um, has the property of uh, promoting um, self-destruction by cells. Now, you can imagine how this might be useful in cancer. Mm. So they're they're administering a Triolos to cancer tumor cells with the idea of uh, trying to get them to uh, self-destruct. You know this is, is apoptosis. Mm-hmm. No clinical success yet, but that's the idea. Uh, a wide variety of diseases that involve um, protein aggregation might be uh, help with triolos. There's a, a long-standing study that's been going on for some years: inhibition of protein aggregation in the brains of mice that have one of these diseases, with some success. And there, there's a lot of hype about about that, about how it might be used eventually. Now there are problems with. Uh, trying to, to do this kind of thing, and that you have to get the triolos into the brain to prevent the protein aggregation. One of the diseases is Alzheimer's that has this property. So yeah, a lot of people think that there's, there's a promise going in that direction. In terms of the whole body, probably not. It's not going to be much use, I don't think. But individual cells, yeah. And I thought this might be what you were coming to. About uh, 20 years ago, the Army approached us about getting involved in a project on uh, human platelets. Now, at the time, we didn't know much about platelets, but we found a good collaborator who did and um, set about to see if we can do something about the platelet problem. Here's the problem. Platelets have a very short lifetime in blood banks, three to five days after which they're discarded. So there's a chronic shortage of platelets, and hence the Army's interest. You know what platelets do, of course, but the audience might not. They They clot the blood. People uh, getting shot out in the field uh, some often bleed out because their blood won't clot. So if you have platelets to administer, you might be able to help them. Well, that's the idea. Well, sure enough, we found that we found a way to get the triolos inside platelets, and we can freeze-dry them. They're stable for uh, at least five years compared with three to five days in the blood banks. You have a little packet of platelets, add water, shake it up, and they're ready to go. It's just that simple. Wow. After we uh, had success with that, that's still in clinical trials, by the way. It's in the hands of a small company in, in Maryland who are in uh, phase three trials now. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll finally get, get, get to market. It's taken a long time. As the FDA was very cautious about this strange product they have. <laughs> uh, but it's getting there. 
after we had that success, uh, the Army came back and said, how about red blood cells and how about stem cells? And uh, we had some considerable success with that. Not ready for prime time yet, but uh, but uh, it's going to work eventually. Uh, the dream of the Army is everybody going into uh, combat would have in their backpack a packet of their own platelets and their own red blood cells and their own stem cells. And you add water under the appropriate conditions and uh, they're ready to go. I mean, it seems like, you know, going going a couple steps further, uh, something we alluded to earlier is that if you could do the same for organs, you could have a situation where no organ from, you know, a, a person who dies would go to waste. And, this you know, you could you could hold on to them for much longer until you find the right uh, recipient. Is that a possibility? It is. But Lois wants to say something uh, about it. The whole problem there, I would think, would be distribution because the treloss has to be close to the membrane on both sides to be effective. And, you know, you think about an organ with all its different components uh, and different kinds of tissues. I just think delivery might be impossible. And, and you're the technical side of the duo. <laughs> so I, I trust your <laughs> I trust your judgment on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see, I can see that, that how that would be because it's not you're not just you're not just talking about one set of one type of cells as you would be say in platelets or red blood cells. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are mechanical problems. So with a, something as big as a heart, if you start drying it out, it's going to dry it at, at uh, different uh, rates depending on where in the organ you are. You know, the surface will dry first, and uh, it, leaving the in, inside uh, uh, still fully hydrated. As you continue to dry, it'll crack as a result. And uh, so that's a, a problem that seems insurmountable at the moment. However, having said that, one of the problems with storing uh, hearts, for instance, for a long period is you have to chill them. You can't, uh, you can't just keep them at room temperature, and you can't freeze them. So there is some possibility that uh, molecules like triolose can prevent uh, the damage during the chilling to prolong the uh, storage time of organs like hearts and livers. I see. So what about other important um, single cells, like, for example, eggs or sperm? Is that how the whole, you know, freezing your eggs or, or freezing your sperm would work? Is it through triolose? Well, freezing uh, is a very different uh, phenomenon than the, the kind of drying we do. Uh, freezing freezes uh, some of the water, but not all of it. The kind of drying we do takes out all the water. So there are different uh, phenomena with different uh, requirements. Triolose is an effective cryoprotectant, but there's nothing special about it for freezing. Got it, got it. So it seems like besides tardigrades, there are other kinds of animals or, or biological um, things that also survive almost complete dehydration. So in one, one sort of introductory paper from a, a, a journal issue that you edited, John, they talk about plant seeds, yeast cells, fungal spores, nematodes, rotifers, and even some crustacean embryos like brine shrimp. I wonder if you could Talk a little bit about why. <laughs> I mean, I, other than you know, I guess there might have been times in in their evolutionary history that this would have been something that they would that that would be beneficial. But you know, why these particular species, and you know, not others? Do you have any ideas? Well, actually, it's it's very widespread throughout the animal, plant, and microbial kingdoms. Uh, it's everywhere, and so it's thought to be a very primitive condition. Life is thought to have evolved in uh, drying up uh, 
tide pools early on and uh, when life consisted of uh, aggregations of molecules. But if you're going to dry up and under those conditions, it would be advantageous, of course, to preserve uh, the structure very early on. So it's thought to be a primitive condition. You have the genes to make trellose in the human genome. We don't make it, don't understand why especially, but they're there. That's how widespread it is. Wow. That seems like it would be a, a useful party trick. To no kidding. Just... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thought went into that. <laughs> so let me ask you about this kind of idea that we could have come back to what we started at the beginning about life and water and it being a fundamental aspect of life. I mean, what do you think the triolose work tells us about how we should define whether or not something is alive? <laughs> Well, that dates back a lot of years. Uh, I get, I thought about that a lot as a kid. Is Are these things alive or not? Yeah. They have no metabolism. In fact, a lot of people have went to a lot of effort to try to measure metabolism in these dry organisms, and they couldn't measure anything. So what, what we finally settled on is the requirements for life are tied up in the structure. And if the structural integrity is intact, uh, and by that I mean the ability to metabolize under appropriate conditions, then it's alive. If that structural integrity is uh, violated, meaning the loss of ability to metabolize under appropriate conditions, then it's dead. Yeah, I like that because it also can be used in sort of like hibernating animals or animals that are in some other kind of state where if conditions are right, they can, you know, revive. So you wouldn't say they're dead, but they're, yeah, but they're not, they're not alive in the same way that... Um, not, not quite the same thing. A hibernator uh, it metabolizes actively. It's slow, but uh, I had a friend when I was a graduate student who studied hibernation and uh, uh, ground squirrels uh, from the Sierra Nevada, and he would keep them in the cold room for uh, many months, and occasionally he would uh, take out a heart and study the heart mitochondria. That's one of the things he was interested in, what happens to the mitochondria. It was the most amazing thing. You open up one of these ground squirrels, and the heart goes, blum. <laughs> it was beating, but very slowly. They were metabolizing. It's a very different thing from these dry organisms where there is no metabolism. Yeah. It's just kind of a mind-blowing thing to think about an organism that literally has no metabolism that's completely dried out, but that isn't dead. <laughs> exactly. So have, have you both officially retired from your positions as scientists at UC Davis? Yes. I remain retain some activity. Lois has pretty much walked away, but uh, I still review a lot of grants and uh, papers and consult quite a lot for industry. But now you have another passion that you are spending more time in. <laughs> and we every do, time we do. try to schedule something, yeah. you're, <laughs> you've got a busy calendar. Uh, and that's actually how we met. So tell us a little bit about that passion. Well, we're both passionate about the arts and um, the theater being our first love and close, followed closely by opera and uh, symphonic music and bluegrass music. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're busy. One summer, a couple of years ago, we saw 16 operas in a single summer. Wow. Yeah, I know. That was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but we love it. It's so wonderful now to, that you get a chance to, to, to do all, you know, go to all these shows and, and, and experience all this art and, and that stuff. So, Yeah, we saw one of your productions. It was delightful. Well, thank you. Thank you. No. Yeah. 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 I was so excited to hear from you afterwards. So John and Lois, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It was a pleasure. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. 
If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. 